0: Welcome to Student of the Game Podcast, where we want you to master the fundamentals, fall in love with practice, and win at the game in life. I'm your host, Brad Knoll. Welcome to the classroom. Today, I am joined by my friend, my brother, my real estate brother, Ben Andrews from Portland, Oregon. Ben has a story that you need to hear today, and it's a story of resilience and perseverance and, uh, and a little bit of showmanship. So, Ben, thank you for coming on the show today.
1: Honor to be here. I appreciate you having me.
0: Uh, let's get right into it. So, uh, first of all, for those watching the podcast, I uh, apologize for those that are just listening, but for those watching the podcast, I've got my Nike waffle fry sweatshirt on because a young kid who, who's a friend of ours uh, owned it, and I said, I have to own that sweatshirt. So, the waffle fry... He didn't know what this meant he owned the sweatshirt i'm like wait a minute i got to call ben andrews so you got a story about this waffle we don't need to get into the story but let's talk about you for a second because the waffle is definitely going to come back up so tell tell us a little bit about ben andrews
1: had a norman rockwell childhood amazing parents amazing brother all of us are super tight and i had dreams of becoming a professional athlete my parents did everything they could do back in those days um, except financially they didn't have a lot of extra money we just played we just played every sport all the time. And uh, it was, a, like I said, just a magical childhood. And then, uh, you know, life happens and some hurdles come and you, you learn to get over them. But my family was there all the throughout, throughout all of it.
0: Now, and I think uh, my memory is probably not spot on, but I remember meeting you at a real estate conference on a basketball court. Yes. So I'm going to just, ba- based on how you play, I'm going to guess one of your favorite players, Magic Johnson.
1: Without a doubt. Without Uh, a doubt, always smiling.
0: Your game, you can be on my team any day if you're a pass-first kind of guy. (laughs) So when I met you, uh, basketball was kind of like your thing, right? You wanted to to be in the NBA. Yeah. What what happened? Tell me about the high school story about uh, playing basketball, and we'll transition a little bit to your track career.
1: Sure. Uh, I was on a a phenomenal team. Our team was ranked second in the state, eighth on the West Coast. We had a star player. uh, Damon Stoudemire was the other player in our state. And these two players were co-player of the year three years in a row. So there was all sorts of attention on us. We had an amazing team. And we we're going to a tournament five hours south of us my junior year. And my coach was known to, to put a few back. And I said, hey, coach, I don't I don't feel comfortable driving with you. I'm going to meet you down there. My parents are going to drive me. And he said, you're on the team. You're driving with us. And I, I said, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you I'm not. You drink too much. And he uh, threw me down in his chair and hit me a few times, and that was the end of my basketball career. So I know I would have ended up playing college basketball somewhere, but that dream was just ripped. And he was such an influential coach in our state, had all the connections to the colleges, and I, I knew it was over. And so I went out for track that spring, knowing I'm a good runner. I've got gifts at it, but I don't. I don't really love it. And I was. I made it to the state. Tr- championships. And I was ranked 11th out of the 12 runners at the state meet. So my goal was just to not get last. That was my goal. And I wanted to lead at least one lap so that my parents could hear Ben Andrews. Andrews is the leader. And I did and I my parents, you know, I could see them in the stands. And I thought I wonder if I could do this again. And so I led the second lap and I just kept going and running so I couldn't hear anyone. And then they would come back to me, and then I would sprint again. And this continued. I ended up getting second place. I lost by a 100th of a second. But the interesting thing is the the runners that were at the state meet, the one and two runners were ranked number two and three in the nation. So, again, just like all of the basketball coaches watching our basketball team, all of the college recruiters were watching this race to see which one of these two guys is going to come out on top. I improved 14 seconds that day, which is... I can't even put it into words. It's a ridiculous improvement. And uh, Bill Dollinger, a famous track and field coach, Olympic medalist, he came up to me and, and offered me a full ride scholarship right on the spot to and Oregon. To Oregon. The- now, first,
0: of, first of all, now these listeners are going to be all over the world, but but this podcast is based out of Indiana, which is basketball is a religion here. <laughs>
1: yeah. So I,
0: I got to assume that that track and field is a religion in Oregon.
1: Absolutely, the so track coach- that I, yeah. the track that I won, or I, I got second place at, that was the track where Bill Bowerman and Phil Knight joined a, a partnership and created Blue Ribbon Sports, which later became Nike. And so, there's so much rich history with running, with track and field, and uh, the the first jogging class in the world was held at Hayward Field. So, there, it was, it was incredible. But I was not a runner. I was, I was not a runner. And he said, well, you know, you might have woke up a basketball player, but you're going to bed tonight as a runner. And I remember when he said that, I just thought, I'm a runner. You know, I know today's culture is all about identity. I didn't know what my identity was when basketball was ripped from me. And I knew at that moment, okay, I'm, I know who I am. I'm a runner. And I'm a hell of a runner. And let's see how far I can take this dream.
0: So uh, help me out a little bit because I've, I've run a few times. One was to the refrigerator. The other was, you know, because I knew I was going to get the ball to shoot. But um, tell, me, tell me a little bit about, like, did you know you were fast growing up? Because I, I mean, I don't know anything about track and field, but I have to imagine, you know, there's people who are fast, people that have endurance, and those are different, different events. Like, were you just always fast?
1: I was always, always fast. And I had, wasn't necessarily fast, I just enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Um, Nothing like basketball, but it was just, it was easy. And there were very influential people at my life, in my life, at very crucial times that just created that map towards running. And uh, I had a horrible, horrible, horrible fifth grade teacher. It was very verbally and emotionally abusive. My sixth grade, before my sixth grade year, my aunt took me running. My dad was a great runner. And then in sixth grade, after a horrific fifth grade, my sixth grade teacher, we don't do PE in, in this class. I am the PE teacher. And we're going to run every day at recess. Uh, I, I ran with him into my 40s. So he just became this person in my life. Um, in middle school, they had a cross-country course that had uh, you know, a school record, and I broke the school record. I remember a teacher who I didn't like and he certainly didn't like me either. And he pulled me aside and he said, Ben, I hate having you in class, but I love watching you run. You look like a deer. And it's just all those little, um, you know, deposits yeah. emotionally for me that, that drove me to believe it. These are point.
0: affirmations by other adults.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So, this, so this is a podcast to really help people understand, you know, what it takes to master the fundamentals. And that's really the, the beginning of everything. So what are the fundamentals of running? If you're going to coach me to be a runner, you know, what are the things I need to know? Like, do I need Every to get low?
1: Day. <laughs> Every single day, just do it. Just get out. You know, just do it. Just do it. Just do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's it. Literally, just literally it. that's consistency, it. consistency. It's, my uh, if I look back into my running logs and and where I've had bad races or bad parts of my season, it's always followed by me missing my morning run. And the morning run is is the staple of your training. It's a twenty to thirty minute run. You're half asleep because it's at you know five thirty or six a m, but you're just shaking out all of the lactic acid from the hard workout the day before. And then in the afternoon, you, you go at it again, and then that next morning, it's almost like a massage. But those 20 to 30 minutes in the morning, you do those six days a week. That's an extra 25 miles a week, and that is your aerobic base. And if you don't have that, you have nothing. If you don't have that fundamental, you have nothing to build on.
0: So what is that? Um, we're gonna hop around a little bit because you said something. I think you know people who work a nine to five are listening right now, and they're like, "Well, I'm not a track star. Like I have a treadmill, but that's where I put my dirty laundry." You know, <laughs> uh, what, these fundamentals you're talking about is is consistency, but it's also tracking and feedback. Is there any of that that you're using in your life today? And we'll come back to the running, but I want to talk sure. about your business too.
1: I'll prelude that when I was running every morning, I would wake up. I would take my pulse, I would weigh myself. And if my pulse was, you know, four or five beats off of my seven day average, or I was two pounds plus or minus weight holding water, retaining water, uh, I wouldn't do my morning run. And that was an indicator that I was overtraining. And so the feedback was very important. How I do that in my business, so I have non negotiables that I do every single day. And those are, I'm going to talk to people that are important in my life, important in my business, in that order, by the way. And I'm going to talk to my team at 930 every day. And then I'm going to be done by 4 o'clock when my son gets home from school so I could be a dad. Um, and then sprinkle in some lunches with my wife and getting out as a family. It's it's If I don't do those things, I might be out to dinner with my family, but I know I didn't do my morning run slash I didn't make my calls during the day. I'm not there mentally at dinner. I'm Mm -hmm. not there mentally at lunch with my wife because I'm thinking about all the other stuff I've got to get done when I get back. And for me, that was a big thing. I I remember Bill Dellinger pulling me aside during a workout one day and he he just, he he was great at just kind of pulling you in by the back of your head and Ben, you, you didn't do your morning run today, did you? I'm like, how the hell did you know this coach? He says, because I can tell you're, you're thinking and you're not doing the, the exercise. You're not doing the discipline. You're, you're thinking it through, which means you didn't do something. And I've taken that into my business. If I'm thinking things through in the evening when I'm supposed to be with my family, that means I, I didn't put everything into my day at work.
0: I mean, I'm going to interrupt this for a second because you said something. So you're, you're an Olympic world class athlete, but I, I've met your family and your family is a hall of fame family. So shout out to Heidi on the podcast and, and mom and dad and Henry. So let's, Olympic let's, trials,
1: not Olympic.
0: Okay. So. All right. You know, don't let the details get in the way of a good yeah. story, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, shameless plug, Ben's got a book, The Long Run. We'll, we'll talk about that here in a little bit. Um, I'd love, actually love to, to dive into that and, and what you're doing as a, as a speaker and an author and and things like that. But let's, let's go back because I think it's really interesting. So anybody listening right now, you know, maybe you're a student athlete trying to figure out what you want to do you know, for the rest of your life. Uh, I know I was when I got out. You know, I, I, my story is you know, my, mom and, my mom and dad were instrumental in my life and, and basketball was all I knew. And it wasn't until I got done playing basketball that I was a little frustrated with them that I didn't learn uh, much about business or what I was getting into. And it wasn't until I matured a little bit a couple of years into business that I really realized my parents taught me everything about life. Everything it just happened to be through through basketball, through mm-hmm. sports, and uh, and then through just living a principle centered life. So, so tell us a little bit more. We, we want to dive in and, and kind of we're curious about the time at Oregon. I mean, have you met Phil Knight? You know, you you ran for Dellinger. You know, give it give us some of those stories, man. You, you're a great storyteller. What what are some of like the top stories that you remember about your time being at Oregon?
1: I want to speak only to the student athletes first. Okay, and you're trying to figure out what you want to do with your life. I I was short in classes and i had to go back to high school for a fifth year and during that fifth year i got arrested i was facing a five to fifteen year prison sentence i don't need to get into all that but yeah but that was such an instrumental year in my life because i got to see who was in my life and who was with me and even though that dream was deferred it wasn't it wasn't over and so if you don't know what you want to do with the rest of your life if The dream you thought you were going to pursue isn't there right now. It's going to come back. You just have to be very persistent and you have to keep the right people around you that are speaking into your dreams. Otherwise, it will go away. One of the coolest stories is when I finally broke down and told my coach, hey, I'm sorry, I can't go to Montana on this race because I'm on probation. He said, you know, you you don't tell me when and where you run. And I, find, I broke down and told him everything. And after practice, we walked for a couple of hours around Hayward Field, just talking. And it was so, uh, that was an amazing day for me. And he told me, I want you to do some life study. So he hooked me up with this guy, the university archivist. And so I would go in and sort all these different photos and, and history. Of, of the University of Oregon. And I came across this one photo of Prefontaine, Steve Prefontaine, who's a legend and Bill Bowerman, who was co-founder of Nike. And I'm looking at this and he walks over and he says, you know, what are you, what are you looking at? And I said, well, this photo, I've seen everything except this one. This is my favorite one. And uh, he said, well, why don't, you, why don't I give you your, their number and you can call them and get it signed or whatever you want to do. And that began a a relationship of me going over to their house, you know, once a month, having lunch at their house, uh, just talking about everything under the sun, Nike, shoes, farming, uh, tilling the ground that, that they owned up above the McKenzie river, just an incredible mentor because he like all great coaches was more concerned with me than the athlete. He was a phenomenal mentor in spoken parables all the time. And it all came back to athletics, but it was drilling the points home into Ben Andrews, the, the soon-to-be adult versus the athlete.
0: So just real quick, so listeners have an understanding here. You're talking about the co-founder of Nike.
1: Co-founder of Nike, yeah. This so, is so,
0: so, so in your life right now, okay, and you're, you're probably not even, and maybe you're recognizing this because I think you've got some, some really high emotional intelligence here. And it's my cue. Your coach, is one of the greatest coaches of all times and now you're you're kind of being mentored by the founder of nike one of the right. somebody who's like in the history books and everywhere
1: it's it's uh i've, I've lived a, a rich blessed life
0: so because you're on probation it got you a conversation with a coach and because of the conversation with the coach it got you an introduction to the co-founder of nike
1: yeah I called his house and said, you know, can I have this photo autographed? And Barbara Bowerman, who's a very spry little woman, she's like, well, yeah, just send it over and we'll get it signed. And I said, great. You know, and I'm trying to keep her on the phone. Like, you know, I I go to all the track meets. Well, that's great, man. Good luck to you, you know? And I said, well, I'm I'm just trying to keep her on the phone. Like, are you going to the track meet this? Well, I don't know, man. I don't just send us the photo. Well, I'm on the track team. Silence. And I said... Mrs. Bowerman, I'm a, I heard you. I said, oh, well, uh, I was just hoping, Bill won't sign a goddamn thing for you. And I said, well, oh, I'm so sorry. And she said, not until you come up and break bread with us. And that started our relationship. Because I think when we look at the stars or, or the, the people in the limelight, they're still normal people. And no one approaches them, or if they do approach them, they want something from them. And everyone at the University of Oregon and Nike and looked at them as this enigma. And I just wanted a photo. And so when I went over to their house, I remember them pulling up and you know, I talked to Bill Bowerman for about 15 minutes outside on his picnic table. You know, well, let's go inside and, and have our sandwiches. Are you hungry yet? And I, I said, no, I'm not actually. And I was like, oh my God, what did I say? And he said, well, you know, give me that picture and I'll sign it. And you could be on your way then. I said, well, I'm, I'm sorry. I just, I'm just messing with you. Just, just, he, he told me, he says, settle down, settle in a little boy. You know, we got this. And I just treated them normal and it wasn't any emotional intelligence on my end. I was just, too naive at the time to understand the magnitude of who they were. But I learned so much through them uh, in the way they they communicated in their relationship. Here, he's this incredible um, you know, historical figure, to your point. And she was his champion, but it was okay taking a backseat, but also stepped in and, and spoke her mind when she needed to. In- incredible opportunity. But it was an opportunity because... I acted on it. Before I called them that day, I sat on my phone for 45 minutes and, you know, I couldn't dial the the, the seventh digit, you know, I was, in, I was intimidated.
0: Palms are sweaty a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, yeah.
0: so, so, so you, I've caught a theme here and I, if our listeners are paying attention, you know, you've been a student of the game because I feel like there's some curiosity that you have, right? I mean, you, you study, you study the greats. You know, you study the greats and then, and then you act on it. Whether you're nervous or not, you take action. And I think we all can learn from that. The other thing that uh, it sounds like is you've, you've somehow, uh, and I know how, but the listeners probably don't, it's because of who you are. You have somehow attracted yourself to other givers. Like people who really want to help you out. How has that impacted? Because we talk about this in our business, right? One of the things for our business is we have a list of relationships. We help people buy and sell homes all over the country, You know, especially in our backyard, but can connect them everywhere. And we talk about every single day is our goal is to find the givers, the people that really genuinely want to help somebody else. I want to help you, Ben. Uh, I want to help the people listening to this podcast. You've been connected to people that want to give. How has that played a part into your business, now into your life, into your family that you've got these adult figures that are massive in in stature and who they are and what they've done. How how are you a giver to the people in your life?
1: I don't think you would track those people unless you innately are. You know, our mentor Brian Buffini says when you get money, you'll be exposed as to if you're a giver or if you're cheap. And when you are attracted to greatness and you get to experience it it's your obligation it's your duty to be the same way and you want to emulate emulate them you know i've i've seen you play basketball your game i've I've, i know a few moves and it's you you're emulating someone you've seen someone that's come before you we want we model it don't we we model it Hmm. and far too long in my adult life i've said i got this i can do it and every time I've done that, I'm, I've been very humbled. Billy Graham, the Reverend Billy Graham says, but before a great fall, a greater decision has been made. So if that means I can go at it my own, I don't need help. Well, you, you that's going to come to roost as well. Or I can say, this person has modeled their life really well. Let's go get it.
0: Was there a point in time when you were on the track team at Oregon where you felt you didn't need anybody else's help? You felt like, I got this. I'm I'm a track star. I think there's a song about that. Yeah. I'm not a runner. I'm a track it. star.
1: It was the worst season I had. It was my senior season. What that's happened? Awesome. I'm the third best American in the, in the nation. I'm the third fastest American-born person in all of the NCAA. That's incredible. That was the worst season I ever had. Uh, and it was the worst season of school I've ever had. It's the worst one of, I've had many, but one of the worst seasons of life I've ever had. Uh, but if you wake up and recognize before it's too late, and it's never too late. But if you wake up and recognize, you know what, I am I was bad here, or I didn't lean into my gifts here, I didn't lean into any help here, you're screwed.
0: I remember uh, in high school, yeah, you know, pretty good high school career up in Michigan. But it was when Grant Hill was playing with the Pistons, and I think he scored sixty points or fifty-five, sixty points or something like that. And I'll never forget, you know, the paper interviewed him, you know, after and and they they asked him the question. They said, you know, that was a that was a great night. I mean, you're you're breaking records. You know, you're you're an NBA future All Star, and he says, you know, I'm not as good as my best day, and I'm not as bad as my worst day. I'm probably somewhere in between. That's a great quote. And it was amazing. And so it, it kind of reminds me of that. When you when you
1: talk about fundamentals, yeah. my favorite Grant Hill story is the famous Christian Leitner shot. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't know that that's how they ended practice. Every single day, they ended practice with that play. And so what was that, 1.8 seconds or something? They go into that timeout and Coach K just looks around at everyone on the bench and Grant Hill and Christian Leitner lean up and said, who's throwing it and who's shooting it? And Grant Hill says, you know, my dad, who was Tony Hill, Dallas Cowboy, says, my dad was known for, th- for catching them. so let me throw it. Timeout's over. And they just go out on the court and perform one of the most magical plays you've ever seen in the history of basketball. But it was a fundamental. They were a student of that play. So I'm getting goosebumps retelling it. It's That's the most incredible basketball story that you've ever had. And Coach K turned around to his assistant and said, "This is going to be amazing." And the coach is like, "Coach, this we got three. We got to go full court." It's like we've done this play more than anyone in the history of basketball. We're ready. And, and who actually know knows that, that story?
0: And who actually knows the story? I mean, you know, we we have a saying on our on our team is preparation. Creates separation, mm. mm-hmm. and and they were prepared. You know the audience. You know the the people watching. That they, they don't understand all the preparation that it took. And you know I want to get into kind of some of the things that you did to prepare for a race. But you know we can we can have a good week or a bad week, right? If, whether you have a job, you're a student athlete. You know you're you're starting a small business. You know it, the work that goes unseen is really what separates everybody. You talked about it. You're. I don't, I hope everybody caught it. You took your pulse and your weight every single morning and you logged it. That's, that's part of your preparation. What else? Here comes a race. You're getting ready to run and, you know, and, and it's big, big conference race. You know, how are you preparing?
1: Well, I didn't treat a conference race any different than I did a. a, you know, I'll I'll puke on Washington, right? If we're going to go against the Huskies, it's the same preparation. My coach used to tell me, we would, we would see these incredible times from other schools and, We would say, hey, why aren't we at those races, coach? Because they're running fast times. And he would say, prepare like you're at that race, every single race. It doesn't matter where you are because greatness is where you are, not where everyone else is. And that was a mind shift reset. But every single race was the same as the conference race or against the Washington Huskies. And here's the big secret. We would work out seven days a week, but Tuesday and Thursday were our hard days. Those were our workout days. And every single one of us prepared for that workout just like we would for a Saturday because we wanted the neurons hitting differently. We wanted our mind to realize, like, okay, I'm getting ready to go into battle right now. I've got to get my body ready. And I remember warming up with a guy. I was a a sophomore. I was ranked, you know, 25th in the nation. He was ranked fifth in the nation. He was the man to beat. And we warmed up together, and he was talking about his warm-up ritual. And I said, well, do you do that at practice? And he said, well, no, why would I do that at practice? I said, well, I've already got you beat because I've I've done this 38 times this season. So I'm already ready. You're going down. He knew. At the, I, I could see the look in his eyes. He knew it was over, and I destroyed him. With 300 meters to go, I looked at him like, this is what I was talking about. And I took off. But whenever you go to anything, whether I go to a buyer presentation, I have the same ritual. I have the same song I listen to in the car. I have the same five minutes in my car down the street before it's seven houses down. I'm very methodical about it. So that way I can get my mind into a routine so that I can prepare myself.
0: That's unbelievable. That was wow. a long answer. Sorry. That, that, that was unbelievable. Like the, like the work that goes into the detail, the work that goes into the preparation, people don't understand. You know, and I, I always joke with our team here is in our industry, you know, buyers and sellers don't get a test drive, right? They don't get a test drive who we are. They're, they're making them one of the largest financial purchases of their life and they don't get a test drive who we are. And a lot of times, you know, I'll, I'll say, you know, don't interview necessarily me against somebody else. Interview our business models,
1: right.
0: interview our preparation. You know, the things that are unseen is really what makes the, the, the biggest difference here.
1: So I had an agent from uh, up in Washington 10 years ago call me and say, Hey, you're very successful. I want to I come see what you do. And I said, You're not going to like it. You're not going to like it, but you can pay me a thousand bucks and shadow me for my work day. And he says, Okay. So he drives down. We met at the office at nine o'clock. I made my phone calls. I wrote my notes after I was done with the phone call. I, did a pop-by. pop by. by two different uh, business professionals in my marketplace. It was 11 o'clock. I said, well, I appreciate you spending some time with me. And he goes, well, it's only 11 o'clock. And I said, but have you worked this hard one day in the last month? He said, no. And I said, I do this every day. So if you do this every day, you'll see the success. Never heard from him again. And guess what? He's selling cars. Because it's to your point, Brad, it's the details and the preparation that are everything. So if you don't have that, it's you just, you're winging it every single day.
0: Time out. Student of the Game is brought to you by Noel Team Real Estate. Our mission is to eradicate mediocre real estate transactions. On your largest financial purchase, you shouldn't have to deal with average. We do this by helping you save time, reduce your stress, and helping you keep as much money in your pocket as we can. You can help us out by introducing us to your friends or family who want to make confident real estate decisions, whether buying, selling, building, or investing. At Knoll Team Real Estate, we are connected to a group of realtors who sell one in every eight homes in North America. If you know someone moving out of your area, there's a great chance we can connect them to somebody we know, like, and trust. Remember, relationships win. Now back to the show. So we've covered a lot uh, about your backstory, but the themes that I'm getting is that, you know, the fundamentals have a lot to do with knowing the right people who can help you out, right? It, a lot of the mentors, it's, it's having a coach and then all the things that go in behind the scenes, it's, it's being committed to it. Like, so, so like you are, you are explaining how falling in love with practice will actually get you the victory. Like that race right there, like, your pra- like you loved your practice routine so much that you already beat the guy before you were in the blocks. That's, that's fascinating. All right. Uh, we're going to switch gears just a little bit. Um, I do want to come back to the, the waffles though. I, I, I want to keep coming back to that. Tell me a little bit about uh, what's it been like for Ben and Heidi in a season of your business that maybe you got lost and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you out here. Okay. I watched your good life story. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about that because that was influential in my life before I even met you. So tell me about, you know, you're you're in real estate, you had some successes, recession comes, and now you're faced with a decision. Tell us about that.
1: <sighs> that was heavy. My wife, uh, Heidi, who we started our business together at the same time. And when our son was cooking, she had a tough pregnancy and, and had to step away from the business. And I had friends who, like dear friends of ours, mutual friends, couple of friends. I would show up at a house to show them the house. And they're looking around like, Where, where's Heidi at? I said, Oh, she's, she's at home sickness, you know, with the baby. And like, Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, well, we, we don't need to see this house. I said, what's what we're here to do? Well, not, not without Heidi. So I had to look at her just like I have athletes before me and say, I want to be like that person and say, I need to, I need to be more like Heidi. I need to care more. Uh, if you're not ready to buy a house today, at that time, I had three others over here that were, and I would focus on them and not bring them along and nurture them. One of my favorite things about Bill Bowerman, I'm sorry, Bill Dellinger, was he always had these hanger-ons, these people that were not on the varsity team. They would show up for practice. And I asked him one time, I'm like, why do you spend your time with these people? He goes, well, A, I'm a coach. I'm a coach. I don't coach elites. I coach. That's it. And you have to find those people in your life that are willing to just coach for the sake of coaching. I had to look at Heidi and say, she wants to serve these people, not because they're buying a home, but because she is a server. That's the basis of who she is. And uh, it unfortunately took me far too long to realize that. But that was the making of the man. That was my opportunity to to step into my greatness and say, okay, I'm going to lead my family. I'm going to dig us out of this financial rut. Recession or no recession, there were a lot of realtors that made it during that. I was not one of them. And it was because I drove our business down. It wasn't Heidi and I. I was like, hey, I got the matches. Let's light this thing up and see what happens. It was all on me. And so it was up to me to, to bring us back to life.
0: That sounds Um, like a, that sounds like a pivotal moment because in my mind, I'm picturing right now, you know, Heidi was you running the race and you were that clown that didn't have a good routine. Yeah, exactly. And and she's, she's looking back at you like, man, this sucker, (laughs) I'm
1: about to blow him out of the water. Yeah. And she's also thinking, I'm I'm depending on this guy to buy some diapers, right? Right. Right.
0: Exactly. Uh, I want to talk about something that was important to me in my life and, uh, Something that you and I went through together, and we called it a little East Coast West Coast competition. So if, if if you've if you've heard a theme in Ben's life is a lot of his lessons has come one through competition, you know through through being an athlete, but it's also you know being a student of the game, understanding that I I need to put myself around people that push me. Everybody's heard you don't want to be the smartest one in the room. And when you get to a certain level, I don't care if you're a banker, a, an accountant, a car salesman, it doesn't matter. If if you're the top producer, there's nobody pushing you. And so you got to go find those people. Ben is somebody in my life that I found that we understood at a level that, you know, I didn't I didn't play basketball at the level he ran track, but we understood what it took. We understood the mindset, the Division 1 athlete mindset. So, uh, Ben, why don't you tell the story, but I'll set it up. So uh, we have this, this friendly competition. We put his team and my team together, and it was who could make the most calls, who could write the most notes, and who could go see people face-to-face. It's the fundamentals of our business. And uh, tell me a little bit about you know, your team and what you guys went through, what you learned from that little competition.
1: Oh, that was, as you know, we've talked about this, that got us through the pandemic, you know, business-wise. I got to see who wanted it. I got to see who was afraid of their own success. And that was probably the biggest thing. Who Not who's a, af- who wants it, not who's afraid of it, but who's afraid of their own success. Mm-hmm. I got to see a partner in you lead your team. I got to see you lead differently. I got to see you very intentional. And, you know, I would get those texts from you or phone calls or screenshots of, hey, man, I talked to 15 people today and here it's. Five o'clock, I'm, I'm dad now, right? But I only made 12 calls. Like, I, got, I got three calls I got to make, or I got to get up early and do more tomorrow. It was the best push-pull uh, thing I've ever done in my business, without a doubt. It was, uh, it, it took me to that next level that I've never gone back to the lower level again because there was just a, a standard of excellence that I didn't know existed. And it was a, 100%, it was accountability. And you Absolutely. held me accountable to that. You know, it was um, you held me accountable to myself <laughs> and allowed me to step into okay, I'm gonna lead my team over here. But guys, if you want it, gals, if you want it, you you better want it. And I will be honest with you, after that, what was that 12 weeks that we did this? Mm-hmm. A lot of my team disbanded because I, I don't I don't want that accountability. You know, I don't want Ben pushing me that hard. I don't want greatness for myself. I'm okay being mediocre and mediocre is okay. It just, that's not what I'm about. I've never Mm -hmm. been around that for a long time.
0: And I think the lesson though, Ben, is, is everybody wanted it before we started.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, everybody exactly. wanted before they started. And,
0: and people listening here is like, you know, it, we set goals, right? We set goals of things that we want. You know, we want more sales, more money, more of this, better health. You know, this is what the scale should say. This is what my bank account should say. But at the end of the day, those are lagging indicators.
1: Right.
0: Lagging indicators only happen with activity. You know, the activity is the leading indicators. And the thing that I loved that was so pure about, you know, our competition, it had nothing to do with that. You know, it had absolutely nothing to do with that. I remember, I remember one of the funniest lines I've heard, you know, in business. Uh, one day I called you and I said, hey, how's business? And you just, I could tell you had this big smile on your face. And you said, I made a lot of money today. <laughs> and, and I said, really, you sold something? And he goes, nope, didn't sell anything. But I got a lot of relationships. And you know what? I made a lot of money today. I'm probably going to see that about six, you know, three to six months from now. Yeah. And it's because we both understand that activity, you know, creates the results. So you know, th- thank you for that, by the way, I'm going to, I'm going to just kind of kind of just share a little bit that, uh, you know, I love the accountability. I love, I love the fact that we had somebody, if you're listening right now and, and you're kind of struggling, you're like on a plateau, uh, my first encouragement is find somebody in your industry. Maybe it's in your own backyard. Maybe it's somebody that you've met at a conference or something. Go, go reach out to them and put a plan together to just have a friendly competition, but it's, it's bigger than a competition. It's an accountability partner. And that's what I got from it. So, so yeah. thank you for that. Uh, I'm going to. I'm gonna share a little love here for a second. I, I want to thank you for, for something that you did in my life. As I remember exactly where I was, I was I was on a road up on the north side of town, getting onto the highway. So I was on on the the uh, the off ramp, or, or yeah, I was on the off ramp coming onto the highway. And I got a phone call from you, and you said, "Hey, will you be on my board of directors?" And I'm like, it it hit me. I almost stopped on the highway, and you said, "Will you be on my board of directors?" You're somebody that you know. I I see how you you are with your family. And I'm, and I'm picking people that, that I want to aspire to be like. And, and you're that person in, as, you know, as you are as a dad and a husband. And that meant a lot. And, and tell me a little bit about your board of directors and kind of how you look at each area of your life.
1: It ebbs and flows. I have people on my board and then they leave. You, you, know, you didn't leave because you were a bad person. It just different seasons of my life. You know, there's, there's the circles of life. I like to refer to it as a relay team. So you've got your personal, your spiritual, or rather your spiritual, your personal, your family, your business. Mm -hmm. If all of those are in alignment, the money will come, the fifth circle, financial. But what I try to do is every six months, pick someone who I think is doing things at a different level that I want to aspire to. Maybe it's spiritually. Maybe it's their family life. Maybe it's, hey, their business looks good. It's built-in accountability for me, mm.
0: and you've and been so, intentional yeah. with that. You've been intentional with all your coaches, you know, and who you surround yourself with. Yeah, um, I, I know we're running running short on time here, but I want to talk. Uh, I want to talk Let's about turn your it book. Into two
1: episodes, it's fine. Let's do it.
0: All right. So here we are in episode nine. Um, I want to talk about <laughs> I want to talk about your book for a second, The Long Run. Sure. Okay, so now uh, for those for those watching here, uh, you've got a copy. I obviously got my copy here. Tell I, me about tell me about the birth of the long run. Where'd that come from, and uh, and what's it about?
1: You know, I've been writing a book for a couple decades, um, not really, but just in my head. And you and I were both at a conference uh, called the Peak Experience in San Diego, and they the, they were referencing a movie, The Shawshank Redemption, where he is wrongly accused, wrongly imprisoned. Breaks out, found his redemption at Shawshank, found his redemption at the place he did not belong. And I realized, gosh, that's, I went through some crap, but it redefined who I was. And all the people in my life elevated or walked away from me. And it was the best lesson I ever learned. I think, uh, you know, without some of the things I had to go through, I think it's one of the best lessons most men can go through. Because you find out who's with you, who's against you. How it really started was my son uh, was uh, seven at the time. So it's five years ago. And he asked me a question. I had no idea how to explain it to him in his language. So I just played with him some more and we had some fun and kind of worked it out. But I thought, I've got all these cool experiences. I need to tell him. So it just started with my phone doing voice notes. And then... Took a long time, but just trying to put all of those pieces together. It's essentially uh, the story of Forrest Gump on some medication. That's really what it, <laughs> what it comes down to. I've, I've lived a pretty incredible life, and I'm, I'm not even close to being done. But I've been around some incredible people that have taught me some beautiful lessons.
0: What lessons did you learn in writing the book?
1: When I first started writing it, that I was a fraud. That was the first part. If I'm totally transparent with you, I was going in one direction in this book, and it was all about Ben Andrews. And I remember reading through it. I'm like, "Gosh, this guy's kind of an a-hole." And I'm the character, you know. And then I started really dissecting who, who are the pillars in my life, who have been there at these times of despair and when I've lost all hope. Who, who was there? And it was always, always someone who did something that didn't want any recognition and sometimes they were very famous people they didn't want anything from it sometimes that was a guy that complete stranger gave me fifty thousand dollars to quit my job and kept giving me fifty thousand dollars for five years never met him complete strangers that just wanted to give and so that was the new genesis of the book Uh, It's not a running book per se at all, but it's about who do you have in your life? Who do you have on your relay team, so to speak, that are going to push you along to greatness? And who is also in, I think the bigger piece of that is who is in your life that wants greatness out of you? My my senior season, when I talked to you about I had that horrible season, I had some teammates who one was – older had been in the Olympics in 2000 or 96. And I had a freshman who was looking up to me and they both took me out to lunch and said, we expect more out of you. I was like, gosh, like I'm NCAA qualifier. Like I'm the, I'm the top guy on the team. And they're like, if you think this is the goal, the goal, you've got it all wrong. And you need those people in your life. You need people to, to gracefully call you out of your, your own cocoon to say you, you're much bigger than this shell that you're in.
0: Do you have people in your life like that today?
1: I do. And I've shed a lot of people that I thought were there. I've gotten rid of, I, I shouldn't say gotten rid of, I have, I have given Probably. a lot of people the Heisman to say, we're good, but you're not, you're not going to be here.
0: Sure. Your circle's and, gotten
1: smaller, right? My circle's gotten smaller. And it's because people have pushed me out. And say, you don't belong here because you're not who you have set yourself up to be. Uh, and I, I think if, you know, our, our friend Rob Commodore, he talks about being chiseled. If we're not chiseling ourselves or have people around us that are chiseling ourselves, what do we have? Our friends, you know, Dan Faulkner, Sean Hackney, they helped me get through the pandemic. That was a rough time, personally, not because of COVID, it was just personally, it was a there was a pandemic in my own mind, but helping me believe that there's greatness in you. There's greatness in you.
0: It, it uh, sounds like it's, I, I totally agree. And I respect that. And, and you named a lot of people that are important in my life as well. I feel, I feel like your story is similar to so many people. Like there's, there's wins and losses we have throughout life. Right. And, and like, you're the epitome of the student of the game because you, you just keep learning. Like a student of the game doesn't mean it's over. Student of the game doesn't mean like I won. Like balancing, winning, those are action words.
1: Right. When I look at my life, whenever I'm in a bad spot, I love those times. mm -hmm. Like my friends, my family, like, gosh, what are you? Why are you excited? And I'm like, it's halftime, we're down 15, and I get to look around in my own circle of friends and family, and who's with me? Because we got to go out and play a second half. I don't think we're gonna lose. I don't think I'm gonna lose. So if you don't think I'm going to win, well get out of this locker room of my head, we're done here. I, I need you to believe in me and I need you to believe in us. And if you don't have those people in your life, you're, you're not living up to your potential. The other thing with that is uh, I heard a sermon years ago where big black preacher comes up to the front and you just start hearing the people in the congregation, yes. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, we're going to do it. Yes. Yes. And then the preacher finally gets to the pulpit and says, Lord, you've done heard our answer in advance. The answer is yes. Whatever it is you call of us, the answer is yes. And that, I think, is how we have to frame our mind that, you know, whatever your spiritual preference is, I I believe in God, that God's rooting for me. And he's yelling, go, man, go. We're not done yet. And I've got to have those people in my life that as I'm walking through my own life, I'm, I'm ordained, but I'm not a preacher. I get 10, 10% off for a clergy discount at McDonald's. That's about it. But that's a true story, by the way. Um, oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but having those people in your life that are you know, saying, yes, go, go. So,
0: so, the people listening right now, you need to go out and get the book because there's some amazing stories you're you're a fantastic storyteller. But the thing that's come up that i I have a question, and probably all the listeners have this question too, because you you are in no different spot than most people are in their lives, but there's something different about you. Where does your courage come from?
1: When I got arrested, i I was like I get into a lot. I hate to be that guy that's in the book, but I was facing five to 15 years having to register as a sex offender. That's not sexy. And if there's anything that can rock your foundation of who you are as a human being, that's it. But my mom and dad, every single day when my dad would put me to bed, he would say, Ben, I know who you are. I know who you are. They can say anything about me, but I know who you are. And my mom would be at my bedside every morning as I'm fighting for my life, saying, this is all going to be better in one year. I love you. I'm so proud of you. There's nothing that can happen to you that I will not be proud of you. And that's my foundation. That doesn't mean that if you had a bad childhood, you can't. Right, like my dad had a horrific childhood, and my dad said, Not anymore, this stops right here. I am going to lead my family. My mom never had breakfast because her mom slept in every day, every single morning. My mom said, Okay, not anymore. I'm gonna, I'm drawing a line here, I'm gonna make breakfast every single morning. And every it sounds goofy, but every single day, every day, Brad. My mom had cookies and milk waiting for us when we got home, and that was our time to just talk, and she got to listen with both ears how we were doing and how things were going. And as I've gotten older, I've, my courage has come from people like you, people that I have deliberately put in my life for a reason. I'm very, very selfish because I don't allow people in my life that are that come to me with their drama, come to me with, you no, know, if you have an issue, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna have this shoulder for you. But I'm also gonna lift you back up and say, Let's go. We're not we're not gonna sit here. We can recognize it, but we gotta keep moving forward. I had a therapist one time tell me that. I I keep looking back. I keep looking back at that hole that I dug myself into. And he said, so you need to literally physically go dig a hole metaphorically, but then fill it, put some new sod on it, put some flowers on it. So that metaphorically speaking, you can't look back anymore and use that as a crutch to why you aren't further along on your path. You know, it's like your guy in Indiana, Notre Dame football coach, Lou Holtz. And he had all, there was a lot of tension on their team. And he had everyone on the team write out something that they were ashamed of, something they weren't proud of, that they were holding on to. And they all put it in the burn pile. And he said, okay, no more. That's done. And they just meteoric rise. But you have to have, you have to be selfish with yourself and you have to be selfish with the people that are around you. This last conference that I went to, I purposely didn't hang out with some people because I've seen the trend that as they all get together, they're going later into the night. They're not getting to the conference early in the morning to, to do what we're there to do, connect with people. They're walking in at 901 with a power bar in their mouth because they're sleeping off last night. And I've 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 distanced myself from that crowd. It doesn't, I don't doesn't mean they're bad people. It just that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to learn, grow, and be a student. Of the game. Of the game. And whatever that game is. Absolutely. And you gotta, you gotta treat it all like a game. My brother and I were having a conversation last night about. The circles of life and how do you treat those and how if you do it as a game it's fun but but if you're not treating the game like a student it's it's you're just on a merry-go-round and it's oh here i am again here i am again how did i get here again well you never got off that's why
0: well we always say success leaves clues and you've been paying attention to it man because because at the end of the day like you not staying up at these conferences and getting getting in on time, like that's you. That's you checking your pulse. That's you checking your weight. And I guarantee, because I know you're teaching it right now, I guarantee you took more out of that conference than most people did, and, it's, and it's in how you prepared. So, all right, couple couple last things here. Any final stories? I know there's one story about Phil Knight you talked to me about uh, being in in Philly. A little rocky story.
1: That was incredible, but I'm not going to tell that one. Okay. I think the based on this podcast and what you're doing, which is awesome, I said my best story is I wanted to be a basketball player, to be a student of the game. I wanted to be a basketball player. That was it. That was all I did. Every we had a track meet at University of Arizona. I'm in Lute Olson's office. You know, I'm talking to him about, hey, can I come watch practice tomorrow? Sure. Yeah, you're a track kid. Yeah, whatever. Come on in. Have a, a Track meet on the East Coast. I'm taking the train up. Hey, Mr. John Thompson, can I watch the Georgetown practice? I was a basketball nerd. My coach is like, where the hell are you? I'm at the team function, coach. But after that, I'm, I'm out. So we were at UCLA. We had the Pac-10 championships, Pac-12. I know I made you myself. And I just wanted to go inside a poly pavilion and look around and be there. And there was a man sitting on the front uh, row with a basketball reading the book. And I said, My gosh, I could make a shot on this court. Like this is I wanted to be a duck all my life, but I wanted to play basketball. And this was my chance. This is where, you know, he orchestrated a ton of national championships. He, the man in the front row, I go down, I said, Sir, can I can I use your ball just to take a shot? And he looks up over the rim of his glasses and he said, Do you know what shot you're gonna take? And I said, Oh my god, this is John Wooden. It's the most famous coach of all time, let alone basketball. And I said, well, I haven't thought that far, sir. And he said, Ben, knowing what shot you're going to take, it's one of the most important things in life. And he didn't hand me the ball. And we just stared at each other. Coach, I'm going to to shoot a lay-in. No, young man, no. Coach, I'm going to make a lay-in. Hands me the ball. So I go and I make this land and I'm thinking of my dad working overtime, thinking of my mom cleaning toilets like this is freaking crazy. This is unbelievable that I'm here. And I remember I just slammed the ball down and I held it and I walked it over to him and he looked up at me and he said, you may as well make one on the other goal to cover all your bases and do it fast. And I sprinted down the court and I did this layup in front of John Wooden and I handed him the ball back. And I said, and, and this is the story right here. I said, what are you doing here? And he goes, I'm, I'm working with, with a, one of my athletes on his shot. And I said, well, he was like 82 with it. And I said, you're still coaching? No, young man, I'm, I'm still learning. Because if I don't have anything, if I'm not learning anything, I have nothing to teach. I was like, whoa. Talk about a student of the game. Wow. So I go back up at the stands and I'm sitting there for 10, 15 minutes like, what? No, I just freaking did a layup in front of John Wooden. John freaking Wooden. And then his athlete walks in. His athlete at the time had scored more than any player in the NBA history, was four years retired. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar walks in working on the Skyhook, retired with his coach still trying to get better. And I think for this podcast, that's the story I'm gonna pull out of my hat.
0: That's unbelievable. The transformation people go through when they pay attention to success, when they pay attention to the gifts that they've been given is uncanny. Ben, I told you I put on my sweatshirt just for you today. It's the uh, it's the Nike Waffle Fries. Um, I see behind you, you have a shoe. Tell us a little story about uh, how the, how the Waffle and Nike go together.
1: So this shoe, Signed by Bill Bowerman, but one morning he was always trying to to figure out new ways to, to make his runners faster. And one day he was pouring waffles and he thought, you know what, these could be little knobs that could dig into the grass and help his runners. And so that's what he did. He poured rubber into a waffle maker, and that's why you have waffle fries, that's why you have waffle shoes and it was the genesis of a whole new shoe company and it all started with this model called the Nike waffle that's
0: fantastic i'm in the middle of shoe dog right now so i'm going to finish that just finished watching air this weekend fantastic story uh, about the jordans and how michael jordan got recruited to nike so
1: i'm going to tell you one other story about that if you don't mind go for it okay so the the nike story is is the and I've, I've lived so close to it. It's incredible. All the people that, that I've had the opportunity to be around. But there was a athlete named Bob Wodell. Bob was a long jumper on the track team of Bill Bowerman's. He did a long jump, tried to do some other events. He wasn't great, but he was on the team. He was in a fraternity. And in Eugene, there's a thing called the Mill Race. It's this little nasty creek that runs through the middle of campus. So the fraternity men... Uh, at that time, they would they would try to jump the Mill Creek with these, you know, made up boats and bicycles and all this stuff. And in the late 60s, he didn't make it all the way and broke his back and was paralyzed from the waist down. Ten years later, he's not doing well emotionally. And Bill, Bill Varman says to Phil Knight, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to hire Bob what the hell is Bob going to do? That's up to you, Phil. You got to figure it out. So Bob starts working for the company in 1980, they were expanding their, their location and they put Bob in charge of finding the new office space. Why Bob? Because Bob's in a wheelchair. And so they come to Bob and they say, uh, here's our lease, or here's how much money we can afford, go do it. And at the time, they were not doing great. Nike wasn't doing great as a company. They were talking about getting rid of tennis, basketball, and they also had a football division, that's which they were starting. It was like, runnings our bread and butter, let's just stick there. A month later, Bob has them all to this new office space, and they walk in, and it's about 300 square feet. And then upstairs is about 5,000 square feet of office space, and Bob, this is good, but how are you going to get upstairs? Someone's going to have to carry me up there. So this is their thing, right? Every day, Bob would be there early and someone would pick Bob up, carry him upstairs, put him in his new wheelchair upstairs, and this went on for years. In 1982, they were doing better, but still not great, and they were going to cut basketball. That was the one they were going to cut. Bob Woodell's parents sold their house, sold all of their belongings, moved in with their parents, and gave the money to Phil Knight and said, Don't get rid of Nike basketball. Bob needs it because Bob worked in Nike basketball. They thought he was going to lose his job. He said, Oh no, we'll find a spot for we'll find a spot for Bob. Don't worry about it. But Phil Knight is as quirky as he is, as visionary as he is. He's a real dude. And he said, okay, with that money, I'm going to invest it back in a Nike basketball. And what they don't show in that movie is he was with his Nike people in basketball, and he said, Bob Wodell's parents have bet the farm on Bob. Bob's in a wheelchair. Let's bet the farm on Michael Jordan. So the money that came from Nike to do the Michael Jordan contract came from a favor from Phil Knight. I'm sorry, Bill Bowerman to Phil Knight to say, he's not in a good spot. Can you just get him a job? And here's the other part of that. i getting goosebumps. The reason Bob Waddell wanted that office space with the small downstairs and large upstairs so that someone, anyone would pick him up and hold him for twenty seconds to get up to the top stairs because he didn't have any physical contact with anybody. Essentially, he's you know living in a cocoon because he's in a wheelchair; no one can get to him. So that's why he picked out that spot. I think that's such a beautiful story and one that Phil Knight doesn't talk about often, and, and did not want it in the movie. He said, "I don't want this to look opportunistic. I don't. I don't want it in there." and the Waddell's didn't care if it was in there either. Beautiful story. Wow.
0: That's amazing. There's, there's, always, there's always something that's unseen.
1: Yeah. Man, always. so good.
0: Uh, ben, I, I can't thank you enough for, for being a part of this. Thank you. You are now an alumni. Right. The of the game. I love it. Um, one of the things that the, uh, the kids do, uh, the, the kids these days, they say, uh, give him his flowers, which means give him his praise, give him his accolades. If you were to give some flowers virtually today, and as somebody who's, who's been the most instrumental in your life, the most impactful, who's somebody you'd send some flowers to?
1: Uh, I'd be my mom and dad. They, they went to the well for me on more than one occasion. Sometimes when I didn't deserve it. And there was always a lesson along the way, whether I deserved it or not, but they would always have my back.
0: That's fantastic. I've met Mr. and Mrs. Andrews. They're fantastic people too. Tell them I said hello. Ben, thank you so much for sharing everything today. Two last things. The first thing is, you know, our thesis of this podcast is relationships win. How can the listeners help you out today? What What are some things that people can do for you? Who are the types of people that you want to meet for your businesses and speaking career?
1: Sure. Uh, you know, the the first would be people that want to be inspired, want to be called out of to where they're at, because everyone has an opportunity to be a ripple for somebody else. And there are so many times where they think that they don't matter. They think they can't make a difference. And there's so many people that need to hear a message of, hey, it's your turn, it's your time. So if you know of anyone who uh, needs a speaker, whether it's on Zoom or in person at a conference, uh, I would love to throw my name in that hat. I promise you'll laugh and cry and we'll have a good time together.
0: That's fantastic. Uh, And as far as uh, people following you right now, where can everybody find you on socials?
1: Sure, socials is Ben Andrews OR as in Oregon. So at Ben Andrews OR, it's the same across every network. Uh, I'm not on the talk by the way, and I don't live in Montana, but I'm not there. Uh, And then if you go to benandrews.com slash lean, benandrews.com slash lean, I've got a little special something for you. So go there and I'm happy to connect with you.
0: That's fantastic. Thanks for listening to Student of the Game Podcast. Whatever game you are playing, I'm cheering for you. See you in the next class.